appreciate everyone uh, being here. Appreciate Richard last week filling in. And again, Richard will continue next week uh, for two weeks. And then I think we'll have Thanksgiving break and Eddie uh, will start after that. So that's that's kind of the, the upcoming schedule here. And then I, I start basketball next week uh, coaching. So that's that's where I will be for the next six months. So, um, we'll open with a prayer, and Skip has kindly agreed to do that for us. Father, we give you all praise and glory as we come before you. We thank you for this time that we get together to have this fellowship, to look into your word and allow it to change our lives. Father, each time we, we come before you in your word, there's always something that we gain and we leave with a different perspective of life. Father, thank you so much for Alan and his willingness to share with us this evening. And we pray that you would give him, empower him as he speaks to us and shares his thoughts. We give you all praise in Jesus' name. Thank you. <coughs> all right, you've been very patient. And I appreciate your attendance, and hopefully hopefully it has uh, helped in maybe the way we look at Scripture, specifically the Gospels. Uh, my goal would be that as we read through the Gospels, um, we begin to think back and say, oh yeah, I, I think I remember now that Old Testament story or that illustration, and it just continues to give us depth into understanding who Jesus is and how these four writers um, gave us their story of who Jesus is. And again, we need to remember, I mean, we, we these are not biographies as how we define biographies. <clears throat> these are stories that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they believed in what they were writing, and their job was to convey the story in a way that you would believe what they are writing and that you would come to that same um, understanding of who Jesus is. So given that, they they wrote with a certain um, way of, of, of sharing stories, and it's not necessarily chronological. They can put things in. If a story made sense here because of the point the author was making, that's where they put it. And again, we need to recognize that even though we have Harmony of the Gospels books, they were not written to be harmonized. Each stands on its own. And, and we just, if there are differences between them, it's because the authors wanted to put that story in a certain place to make their point. It's not a discrepancy. Uh, it's just the way that the authors were presenting it. We're in the second half of John. We open with this last. Um, uh, we open with this last week. The next day, he pur purposed to go into Galilee. He found Philip. Jesus said to him, "Follow me." Now Philip was from Bethsaida, of the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him. We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. 
Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? A little sarcasm in that. So Philip said to him, Come and see. And, and what we, what we think is, this is kind of John's theme statement. Come and see. And when we go through John, recognize that blindness comes up a lot. There's, there's people healed of blindness. So John is, is kind of saying, I want you to see. I want you to see who Jesus is and not be spiritually blind. So this is John's way of saying, be aware of, of this theme of seeing and how it plays out in John's gospel. Um, and then again, Philip, uh, before Philip called you, when you were under fig tree, I saw you. Nathaniel answered, Rabbi, uh, just teacher. Uh, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And again, <clears throat> we've talked about how son of God is more of a kingly title. It is a Davidic um, title. In the Old Testament, it was used in reference to the kings. So this instance here, because they are kind of paired with each other, and in Jewish literature, a lot of parallelism. We see that a lot in the Psalms. Um, probably son of God here is more of a kingly title. He's using, as he subsequently says, you are the king of Israel. And then Jesus says, truly, truly, you will see the heavens open, the angels of God ascending, descending on the son of man. We talked about angels ascending, descending, the reference back to Jacob. We're going to talk about that here in a little bit more. And then the son of man is a divine title coming from Daniel chapter 7. So we see all of this in John's opening. When we read through John, we do see John divided into two main sections. The first section is really the book of signs. That's where Jesus is doing his miracles. And we see that as John works through that, he gives us um, scriptural references and it's typically as it is written, or as it's been written. And then in the middle of John, around chapter 12, we see a shift happen. And again, this verse uh, in John 12, These things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself. Again, an interesting point to ponder um, as to why he would do that. But though he had performed so many signs, again, that's the first half of the book, they were not believing in him. And from there, we move into the book of Passion as we lead up to the cross. And there we see John, as he references scripture, changing the way he cites the scripture more into the same way Matthew did. So we can see, again, uh, we've got a double citation of scripture being fulfilled and again then we have the one two three four five fulfilled and then again a double citation to end it and we're recognizing that fulfill is not necessarily a predictive fulfillment meaning the original text was not saying this is what the messiah is going to do but we are taking that text and say Jesus, in essence, fills it up, gives it new meaning or a deeper meaning. Um, then the, the original meaning stands, 
but Jesus is, is, is kind of fulfilling the meaning or giving it more meaning. What we're going to deal with tonight, um, again, it's going to be difficult for us to really relate to. Uh, it's just kind of no other way to put that. Let me give it to you an example this way. Say we come up one Sunday morning and limit your reactions. This building has been burned down. Very good. When we get here, we're not thinking that our ability to worship God is now gone. We could, we would, we could set up in the parking lot, have a service. We, uh, if we're visiting family or friends, we'll go to a church where our family or friends are and we'll worship God. We do not associate this building as being where God is present. Now, do we think God is present in our worship? Yes. But we don't see this building as God's exclusive place of worship. That he is at this building and this building only. So, we come to the scripture knowing, having that reference. Now, what about the Jews? What about John? See, for them, there was an exclusive place of worship. That was the temple. And if that temple's destroyed, where, where am I going to worship God? And again, as they were in exile, the synagogue, the synagogue filled in, but that was more of a teaching. So within the Jewish mind, there's this association of the temple with the actual presence of God. And what was the temple referred to? How did Jesus refer to the temple when his parents wanted to find him? Did you not know I must be where? See, now we've got the Snickers. Yeah, please, so please, now, please, now, please, now, please, now, please, I'm, now, now we'll get answers. So, um, and it took me to the last class to remember, but <laughs> people are encouraged now. So yeah, did you not know I must be about my father's house? It was the house of God. I mean, in Acts, it says, when, when it says they were gathered at the house, that's the temple. God's, it's God's house. So for, for John, seeing the temple as the actual presence of God, there's this emotional connection that the Jews are going to have with that concept that we just don't get. So when we see Jesus as being the temple, we're going to have to work at understanding what that really means. Second example. We really don't share much communally um, in different meals or times of the year. Now, we celebrate Thanksgiving, but for us, it's not really a religious holiday. We are thankful. We count our blessings. But we don't see it as a community event with the church. And when we have our Thanksgiving meal, the turkey... It's just a turkey. Does not represent anything. Has no meaning to us other than white or dark. Okay. So everything we serve, it's just turkey. It's just dressing. 
we may we have a candlelight service for Christmas. But then we all go back to our own homes. Uh, for Easter, if not for the crosses that we put flowers on, that service really looks a whole lot like the week before and the next week. <clears throat> Correct? So when we talk about the feasts of Israel, we don't have anything to connect to that. Because one, we are very much an individualistic society. But two, there's no, there's no time of, of community coming together to celebrate for a week. So as we go through these elements that when John is saying, here's what Jesus is like, and we look at the temple and some of the festivals, recognize we, we just have to work at trying to connect here rather than here. Um, is that fair enough um, kind of to set up today's or tonight's lesson? Excuse me? If we could do it for a week, I would grant you that. All right, so John starts off. Again, we've been through here before, but we're going to just so one, one more way to look at this. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So John starts off with this kind of abstract a little bit, that there's this logos, there's this Word, and this Word is with God from the beginning. John is later going to identify the word as being Jesus. But let's think a moment and just say, okay, as we think back to our Old Testament, was there anything that the Old Testament revealed was at the beginning? Can we think of anything that was, that was there at the beginning in creation? Okay. Okay. Any other thoughts? So far, no snickers yet. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. Spirit. This is one I don't think we... This is, again, it's not going to pop into our mind. Let's go to Proverbs. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way, before his works of old. From everlasting I was established from the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth. When there were no depths I was brought forth, when there were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains were settled, before the hills I was brought forth. While he had not yet made the earth and the fields, nor the dust of the world, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he inscribed a circle on the face of the deep, when he made uh, the firm skies above, when the springs of the deep became fixed, when he set the sea for its boundary, so that the waters would not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, there I was beside him as a master workman. And here, Proverbs is referring to wisdom. And it, it kind of personifies wisdom. And there became this, um, as the rabbis tried to understand this, this kind of like, okay, who was wisdom? What is wisdom? So we have a precedent for John to say, in the beginning was the Word, 
because in Proverbs, it's kind of like in the beginning was wisdom. But John then goes on again and says, but the word became flesh. As he's, so Jesus became flesh. Psalm 33, 6, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. John, again, uses the same term as word. So John, again, is saying Jesus is there for creation. And there's this understanding within Jewish thought of, of there being something alongside of God with creation or at the time of creation. We're going to move into Jesus' temple. So we've got this passage again. We're very early in John, John chapter 2. We've got the cleansing of the temple here. He comes in and he, you know, throws out the money changers. Take these things away. Stop making my father's house. So where do we know they are? Temple. Very good, Alan. It wasn't very, wasn't very authoritative, but I'll, I'll grant it to you. His disciples remembered what it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said, what sign do you show us? Is your authority to do these things? Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, it took 46 years to build it. How are you going to build it in three days? And this is the kind of the parenthetical statement for John. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. So one thing, kind of little side note here. Here's where John is telling us how to read his gospel. And that is retrospectively, in hindsight. So when this happened, what did his disciples think? Did they think, oh, I see a crucifixion and resurrection here. No, they did not. It was not until after the resurrection that the disciples reflect upon it, think back and say, oh, now this makes sense. Now I understand what this event was about, or I, I get a deeper meaning of it. So as we look through the Gospels, and as we've tried to go through this, as we've, we've tried to say, let's take this road to Emmaus, it is, it is appropriate that we look at things retrospectively, that we see the life of Jesus, and we can go back to passages in the Old Testament and go, okay, now I see a, a, a deeper meaning as to what was going on here. Could we say that that's what uh, Stephen was trying to convey to the Sanhedrin in his defense? Yeah, absolutely. He went back all the way from Abraham to Moses to uh, Joseph. Yes, yeah, I, I think so. That was worth. Whoops. <laughs> uh, and again, notice it said so when he was raised from the dead, that's what triggered the remembrance. That's 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 the event there that's triggering this retrospective look. So we have here Jesus saying, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise this up. And we see Jesus is, is comparing himself to what? The temple. So we have to understand, what does the temple then represent? 
Because now if I'm going to understand what Jesus says here, I need to try to see what did the temple represent being God's presence. Um, so his disciples remembered, zeal for your house will consume me. That is a quote from Psalm 69, uh, verse 9. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. And what we've been, been looking at is understanding that when the, the writers quote from a psalm or quote from a passage, they're not expecting us just to read the one verse. What's the expectation? That we get the context, that we understand what's going on before and after, or in the case of the Psalms, that we read the entire Psalm. We saw this with Psalm 118. And we saw we, we, Jesus was singing Psalm 118 as he entered the city. And more than likely, Jesus was singing Psalm 118 after they left the upper room and were going to the Garden of Gethsemane. So when we read Psalm 118, and we read, this is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice in it. That Jesus was saying that on his way to be crucified. And, and for me, that, that changes the meaning of, of how we can express that or the emotions included with that. So since Psalm 69 is quoted here, most of us probably, anybody have it memorized? <laughs> I wasn't thinking so. We, there's really not even a, a verse that kind of, like Psalm 118, that sticks out that we sing. Psalm 69 is, by one measure, the most quoted psalm in the, Old, in the New Testament. That measure being the number of different verses that it's quoted. You can see there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Uh, verse nine quoted two different places. Psalm 22 is, is the most often quoted. All four gospel writers quote from Psalm 22, but fewer verses from within Psalm 22. So a lot of them quote the same verse. So depending on how you measure. So Psalm 69 being quoted that frequently in the New Testament, most see that, that they felt that the, that the Jews saw this as a messianic psalm or a psalm of the Messiah. That this David, yes, David wrote this. David ex felt these emotions. David expressed these emotions. But the Jews would have seen that this is also the words of the Messiah. So the words of, that Jesus is the one expressing these emotions also. So I do want to, like we did for Psalm 18, I do want us to read through that this. And, and again, think of Jesus with the crucifixion and, and that part of his life. And what this psalm is saying. So let's, let's read this from the context of Jesus saying these words, knowing, again, as we know his life. Save me, O God, for the waters have threatened my life. I have sunk in deep mire and there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and a flood overflows me. I am weary with my crying. 
my throat is parched. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. Those who would destroy me are powerful, being wrongfully my enemies. What I did not steal, I then have to restore. O God, it is you who knows my folly, and my wrongs are not hidden from you. May those who wait for you not be ashamed through me, O Lord God of hosts. May those who seek you not be dishonored through me, O God of Israel. Because for your sake I have borne reproach. Dishonor has covered my face. I have become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept in my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. Those who sit at the gate talk about me, and I am the song of the drunkards. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time. O God, in the greatness of your loving kindness, answer me with your saving truth. Deliver me from the mire and do not let me sink. May I be delivered from my foes and from the deep waters. May the flood of water not overflow me, nor the deep swallow me up, nor the pit shut its mouth upon me. Answer me, O Lord. For your loving kindness is good. According to the greatness of your compassion, turn to me. And do not hide your face from your servant. For I am in distress. Answer me quickly. O draw near to my soul and redeem it. Ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. All my adversaries are before you. Reproach has broken my heart. And I am so sick. And I looked for sympathy, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. May their table before them become a snare. And when they are in peace, may it become a trap. May their eyes grow dim so that they cannot see and make their loins shake continually. Pour out your indignation on them and may your burning anger overtake them. May their camp become desolate. May none dwell in their tents. For they have persecuted him, him whom you yourself have smitten. And they tell of the pain of those whom you have wounded. Add iniquity to their iniquity. And may they not come into your righteousness, may they not may they be blotted out of the book of life, and may they not be recorded with the righteous. But I am afflicted and in pain. May your salvation, O God, set me securely on high. I will praise the name of God with song, I will magnify him with thanksgiving, and it will please the Lord better than an ox or a young bull with horns and hoofs. The humble have seen it and are glad. You who seek God, let your heart revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build the cities of Judah, that they may dwell there and possess it. The descendants of his servants will inherit it, and those who love his name will dwell in it. So as we think about maybe Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is in prayer. Does he pray this psalm? It's possible. 
So as you, as we read that from this perspective, it's unlikely that we've read it from this perspective before. What are some thoughts that you have on this? Again, you said the opposite of some of those verses on the cross. Lord, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. There's portions that for me are, are hard to reconcile. Um, I grant that. Other thoughts on what you see? Mm-hmm. We're going to, we'll get to that in the next slide here. What about some of the emotions that you see? Is it easy to see Jesus saying this or, or we still kind of struggle through it? Also, you see his humanity and his expressions of this prayer is his expression of his humanity. Very good. And raw humanity. He's not saying what he should be saying. He's saying what he's feeling. Right. And this, the Psalms give you permission to be honest with your painful, raw feelings. I always love that. Very good. It's like, he almost senses that when he says, answer me, so like, you're not answering me. I wish you would. And listen to me. Are you listening? Um, so, and to know that Jesus had the similar emotions that I do and, and they were expressed helps me to identify with him and him with me. Very good. Yeah. Excuse me. <laughs> that was you got the last one, so <laughs> class is over. Um, so uh, I appreciate that. No, I was that's no. That was, I meant I was going. No, that's worthy of Snickers. But then I got. Well, I forgot. Um, yeah, we, we we have to wrestle with this because John. John is quoting this. We see other writers quote quote from the psalm. Paul, we're going to see Paul quotes from this psalm. So there's no question that this psalm is related to Jesus. And like Eddie said, we've, we've got to wrestle with just the raw emotion here. And we see, you know, um, answer me, O Lord. Don't, don't hide your face from me. What were we seeing potentially in the Garden of Gethsemane? He's... he's Sweating drops like blood. Does this psalm give sweat drops like blood? When you look at the emotion that's in this psalm. Um, when he's on the cross, does it feel like God has hid his face? So we, we see these emotions. And, and it's appropriate for us to to now when we read the psalm, do we read it as David expressing that? Yes. But now we've got another way of looking at this psalm. Um, my whole family is turned against me. And there, there's a couple places, and I'm trying to think, Jaber McGee and I think Michael Card both have, have drawn where Jesus is believed. And it's natural. He was a bastard. Yeah. And, and his family still considered him a bastard growing up. And Mary had to carry that weight also. 
Right. And there and there's a couple of verses that say, you know, his brothers didn't believe him. So that the, the passage that we had highlighted that I feel estranged from my brothers, yeah, that's absolutely true. So yeah, we see in John 19, Jesus says, I am thirsty. And that that then is where we see the sour wine coming in. And again, does this psalm predict that the Messiah is going to have that? I don't think it's prediction. I think it's just saying, here's the emotions. Here's the tie to it. Do, can we think it's predictive? Sure. That's not a point that we would argue. Uh, and some will say that. I, I don't see it that way. I see it as a link back to this psalm and Jesus expressing these emotions. Um, again, Romans 15. Here's where Paul quotes from this psalm. Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength, not just to please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach me, you fell on me. So Paul is saying, I, I think Psalm 69 refers to the Messiah. So Paul is even thinking this way as he's writing to the Romans. Um, John 1.14, kind of back to this temple theme now. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory. Glory of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's the New American Standard. Young's literal gets this a little better. And the word became flesh and did tabernacle among us. That's, that's a better rendition of what is there. So, And the reason for that is because when we hear the word tabernacle, what do we think about? Ex, very, uh, boy, I needed one more Snickers. <laughs> Maybe it's rotating. Whoever has the last best comment gets it. No, you can keep it, Steve, but you can share. So, yeah, so there was the tabernacle in the Exodus, a story. So when John says this word, he tabernacled among us, and where, what was the tabernacle a symbol of? God's presence, God's, God's glory came to the tabernacle. So when Jesus is tabernacling with us, he's saying God's presence is with us. Um, and again, in Exodus 25, and they have made for me a sanctuary and I have tabernacled in their midst. According to all that I am showing thee, the pattern of the tabernacle and all the pattern of the vessels, even so you do make it. So God says, here's where I am. This is where my presence is. And we see this phrase that John uses is exactly the phrase that's used in, in um, Exodus here. Um, Ezekiel 37. My servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd. They will walk according to my ordinances, keep my statutes, and observe them. And then we come down to verse 27. My dwelling place also will be with them, and I will be their God. And they will be my pe people. So God's dwelling place is tabernacle. That's the image that John is wanting us to see when he compares Jesus to the temple. So it's, again, with the temple motif that we see through John, it is recognizing that Jesus is now the temple, God's presence here on earth. And recognize, too, that John is writing this probably post-70 A.D. What happened in 70 A.D.? 
temple was destroyed. Rome came in and leveled the thing. So now, where is God's presence? And John is saying, it is within Jesus. We're going to move to some of the festivals now. And I wanted to throw this up here just to kind of give us a feel for it. Um, it's not something we study a lot. Uh, we probably, we, we know a couple of them, but we're not real familiar with them. And I'm not going to suggest that we need to begin celebrating these festivals. They were for the Jews. I would say that it is to our benefit to be aware of them and to recognize what they were for. And you can see we have it in the spring, we have Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits. And then 50 weeks after that, we have the festival or the festival of the weeks. What's another term for that? Pentecost. Pentecost. The 50 weeks is more than likely the time from Passover in Egypt to the giving of the law on Sinai. That is, that is probably the time frame that is between those two. So we have Passover related to Exodus. And then the weeks related to the giving of the law. 50 days, yes, 50 days. Seven over seven weeks. So, yep, sorry, but if I said 50 weeks. Oh, well, that's, that's a long time. <laughs> 50 days between Passover and getting to Sinai. And then, so again, what do, what do we see? Um, we saw Jesus crucified during what feast? Louder? Passover. Passover. He ascends to heaven. And then when does the Spirit come? What day? Pentecost. Start tying this together. So what happened at Sinai? We had the giving of the law. We have Peter now giving giving this sermon on Jesus. Uh, so, so that relationship is there. We then move to the fall, where we have the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, and then the Feast of Tabernacles. And we've just completed that. You'll see that's in our uh, September-ish time frame. So um, Rosh Hashanah is in there too. Yeah, Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets, that's the Jewish New Year, uh, the kind of the civil New Year. And then you've got the Day of Atonement, which is really the holiest day of the year. That is a day of fasting where, where the high priest went into the Holy of Holies. And then this, this Feast of Tabernacles of Sukkot, where they would actually build tabernacles representing what? Yeah, time in the wilderness. Okay. <laughs> and then the similar time frame Hanukkah. Now the interesting thing with Hanukkah is it is not a feast that is, in essence, authorized in Torah or in the Old Testament. Where did Hanukkah come from? Maccabean Revolt. 
um, when the um, and uh, I got another slide. I'll wait to get there. I'll keep we'll keep you in suspense if you don't know. So Jesus and the festivals. So we have the festival of Sukkot or the booth or tabernacles, John chapter 7. And again, it's important because as we read through John, and John really is the one who, who kind of keys in on these, he's giving us these, these in essence, uh, chronological hints. And, and we just need to be aware that, okay, so this is the festival that's going on. So John 7, after these things, uh, Jesus was walking in Galilee. He was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews, again, the Jews is not all Jews. It's more than likely Jewish authorities in Jerusalem. So kind of translate that uh, most of the time when John says the Jews in a derogatory way or in a way that's in opposition to Jewish. This is not all Jews. It's the Jewish authorities in Jerusalem. And again, that's why he's saying unwilling to walk in Judea. That's where Jerusalem was. Now, the Feast of the Jews, that's going to be all Jews. Okay. The Feast of Booths, that's tabernacles, was near. Therefore, his brother said to him, leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples may also see your works, which you were doing. That's probably a little sarcastic. Okay. His brothers really didn't believe him. We know that. So, so that's kind of this sarcastic I go show yourself off kind of comment, okay? Uh, for no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And again, for not even his brothers were believing him. So there's the context, I think, to say this is a little sarcastic in their comments. Continuing on, John seven thirty seven. Now on the last day of, of the great day of the feast, which feast? Tabernacles. Jesus stood up and cried out with a loud voice, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. For he who believes in me, as the scripture says, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given. So Jesus comes in the last day of this festival, says, Hey, if you're thirsty, come drink. So in the Feast of Tabernacles, there was a water ritual to where the priests would go to the Pool of Siloam. The reason for that pool is uh, there was a spring outside of Jerusalem that flowed. Hezekiah built a tunnel, so brought that spring water into Jerusalem. So that is a, a spring, or the Pool of Siloam is a spring of living water or flowing water not like a catchment for rain basin, okay? And the, the priests would come and they would, they would get some of the water. They would take it back to the altar, have some wine, and they would pour both on the altar and the wine, uh, water and um, wine on the altar. So you've got this flowing out of the altar, this presence, so, and there was just, you know, much fanfare, much, much celebration with that. So Jesus is taking that and saying, as, as potentially the priests are dipping into this water, Jesus saying, no, no, it's not going to be the sacrifices in the temple come to me for this living water. Where does, where is he quoting from? Well, we saw Jesus, um, the, the woman at the well, again, he gives her the same 
Same concept. Zechariah 14. For it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but it will come about that at evening time there will be light. Again, the festival of booths, there were also lights associated with that. And in that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them towards the eastern sea, the other half towards the western sea. It will be in summer as well as in winter. We're also going to go to Ezekiel 47. Then he brought me back to the door of the house. Where is that? House is the temple. And behold, water was flowing from under the threshold of the house toward the east, for the house faced east. And the water was flowing down from under, from the right side of the house, from the south side of the altar. He brought me out by the way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate by way of the gate that faces east. And behold, water was trickling from the south side. There's this. So we have this image in Ezekiel of water flowing out of Jerusalem and flowing out of the temple. And Jesus is saying, I, I am that. I am the fulfillment of that. How, you know, I, I'd have to struggle through this one a little more to understand okay, how is this really fulfilled? What's the, what's the real symbolism he's trying to show us here? Um, we go to John 6. Um, after these things, Jesus went away to the other side. Jesus went up to a mountain, sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. So what time frame are we in? We're in the spring. We know that Passover is there. Um, so what are we thinking about? Exodus. And what do we see Jesus doing? Feeding giving bread to uh, to the people with, who were there. Um, again, I uh, didn't put the chapter here towards the end of John. John says, now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold your king, away with him, away crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? So John places the crucifixion here on the day of preparation for the Passover. And there's this, you know, and, and the other gospel writers seem to place it on Passover. We shouldn't be worried about, okay, so which day really was it? Again, each author is trying to convey who Jesus is. What happened on the day of preparation for the Passover? What happened at the temple? The lamb was slain. And again, Fran brought this up last time. When John the Baptist says, Behold the who? Of God. So I think John is, is tying these together. And John puts it on the day of preparation to tie Jesus into the Lamb of God and being the sacrifice um, that was offered there. Exodus 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the ordinance of the Passover. So here we have the initiation of the Passover. No foreigner is to eat of it, but every man's slave purchased with money after you have circumcised it, then he may eat it. That's because at that point he's now a Jew. A sojourner or hired servant shall not eat of it. It is to be eaten in a single house. You are not to bring forth any flesh outside the house, nor are you to break any bone of it. Notice the singular. Psalm 34. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Notice the plural. 
So when we get to John 19, John 19, John says, For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture. Not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture that says, They shall look on him whom they pierce. So John, what John has done is in essence kind of fused the Exodus story and the quote from Psalm together and brought those two different um, concepts and brought them together in Jesus. One is the Passover lamb and the other as, again, we would what would we need to do to fully understand this? We need to go to Psalm 34 and read the entire Psalm and to get what is the psalmist saying here to see how does that now apply to Jesus. John 10. At that time, the Feast of Dedication, that's also known as Hanukkah, took place. And it was winter. Uh, where, where was Hanukkah? December. Okay. Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. Who's Solomon? David's son, but also king of Israel. So we have, we have um, the Feast of Dedication, Hanukkah. We've got a reference to a king of Israel. Jews were gathered around and were saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, that's a kingly term. Tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name. These testify of me. But you do not believe me because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. They follow me. Um, Again, my father's given them to me. They're not going to snatch me. No one will snatch them out of the father's hand. What are the Jews asking at this point? Again, we have to recognize what was the Feast of Dedication? What was um, the Feast of Hanukkah about? The Maccabees Rebellion. And Antiochus Epiphanes came in, desecrated the temple, set up an altar to Zeus. Uh, Judas Maccabees or the Maccabean family gathered the ar- gathered an army and basically beat beat them out. Restored the temple, rededicated the temple, restored Jewish independence. So this celebration is very much about a a military conquest, a, a kind of a looking back at the good old days. Right? Because where were they now? Well, they're under the thumb of Rome. So it's a little bit of looking back to those good old days when when the Maccabeans ruled and and overthrew a foreign power, reestablished the temple as a place of worship and of sacrifice. Um, So it became then also a, a looking forward to when are we going to overthrow Rome? When will we regain our independence? And what's the question that they're asking? Are you going to be the one to overthrow Rome? They're, they're asking a military question. And Jesus is, has to rephrase this and say, that's not what I'm about. But, but recognize just the, the situation there. Would Rome have been happy for Jesus to have said, I'm the man? What would have been, I mean, Rome would have taken very swift action. 
with that. So there's, there is concern that if Jesus comes across as this military savior, that Rome would come in and, and just in essence kind of take care of the problem. So the festival of dedication <coughs> is Hanukkah, victory of the Maccabean revolt. Um, so again, we've kind of talked about those those events in, in relationship, and that's what John's readers would have understood. And it's how we it's what we struggle to understand. We see the feast of dedication, we just kind of go blindly on and reading it through without really catching the political overtones of, of what this event really had and how Jesus had to shift the narrative. Uh, Jesus said, again, we, Jesus was talking about the sheep and how he's going to gather the sheep and my sheep hear my voice. Ezekiel 34 is where he's calling us back to. Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. My servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. So God in, um, in Ezekiel says, I'm going to set up, is it literally David? No, it's one of David's descendants as the shepherd. So they're looking for this to happen. Jesus says in John 10, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life. Uh, and then here we are again, back to John 22. If we look at verse 28, and I give them, give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and what? No one is able to snatch them out of whose hand? Father's hand. What has Jesus done? He's compared himself to the Father, hasn't he? And that's why he says, I and the Father am one. Why can't they snatch them out of Jesus' hand? Because it's the same hand as God, the God of Israel. So when, when, when people say, oh, Jesus didn't really ever claim he was God, you're, you're missing all the hints and all the passages that say very clearly, no, I am God. And when he says, I and the Father are one, what would we, what should we recall? Again, very important passage in Deuteronomy. No more snickers, so. It would be the Shema. Hear, O Israel. The Lord your God is what? Is one. This, this is the Shema. This was the daily prayer of every Jew. And Jesus is, is in essence coming in and saying, when you're praying the Shema, I and the Father are, are one here. And, and it's just hard for us to see the significance of what Jesus is saying here and how he's impacting and interpreting um, the, the Torah. We were in Ezekiel and, and God said, I'm going to set up David as a shepherd to care for the sheep. But God goes further than that. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep 
and I will deliver them from all places from which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. I will bring them out from the peoples from exile and gather them from countries and bring them to their own land. I will feed them. Think back. What did Jesus do? Fed the 4,000, fed the 5,000. Um, in the mountains of Israel, by the streams and all the inhabited places of the land. I will feed them in good pasture. And we can go to Psalm 23. And their grazing ground will be on the mountain heights of Israel. There they will lie down on good grazing ground and feed in the rich pasture of the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock and I will lead them to rest. What did Jesus say? Come and I will what? Give you rest. Declares the Lord God. See, only God could give rest. So when Jesus says, I will give you rest, he is placing himself in the role of Jehovah. I will seek the lost, bring back the scattered, bind up the broken, and strengthen the sick. But the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with judgment. And when 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 John sent his disciples to Jesus and said, Are you the coming one? What happened? Seeking the lost, bringing back. He was binding up the broken. Those, those were the things that Jesus was doing. Um, Exodus 16. Again, we go back to Exodus. Uh, we're thinking of when, when Jesus feeds the people, giving them bread. Um, again, the people are coming out of Egypt. They're complaining. Uh, don't have anything to eat. Again, they grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. They shall go out. So what is this? This is manna, right? This is the manna, the bread from heaven. John 6, Jesus answered to them, Truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes. What happened to the manna if they didn't eat it? got a little wormy. Um, so verse 30, so they said to them, what do you do? Uh, what then do you do for a sign that we may see and believe? I mean, as you've already had signs. What work do you perform? Listen to what they said. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you. And notice how Jesus is, is taking what they meant by that. When they said he gave bread from heaven, who were they referring to? What does Jesus say? It's not Moses. They, When they said, oh, he gave us bread from heaven, they're referring to Moses. Jesus said, no. No, you're misunderstanding that. It is not Moses, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. And then down to verse 38, what does he say? For I have come down from heaven. Again, we go back to Exodus. What does Moses say there? God rained down from heaven the manna. Jesus is, Jesus is putting himself in the same position um, as the manna. We could go through the, the I am statements. Again, kind of let you go through most of those. Think of how those all reflect back on events in the Old Testament. Uh, that's really what they're meant to do is to recall us back to events in the Old Testament. We need to read those events in order then to kind of understand now what Jesus is saying by this. 
We're going to close uh, with this, uh, the vineyard. In the Old Testament, we see Israel compared to a vineyard very frequently. Um, Isaiah does. Jeremiah, yet I planted you a choice vine, a completely faithful seed. How then have you turned yourself before me? Ezekiel, your mother was like a vine in your vineyard, planted by the waters. It was fruitful. Hosea, Israel is a luxuriant, luxuriant vine. He produced fruit for himself. So we've got this concept in Jewish culture of Israel as being a vine. John 15, what does Jesus now say? He says, I am the true vine. So we have to think back to the times that we see Israel represented as a vine. And Jesus now, in essence, saying, I am replacing Israel as the vine. I'm the true vine. You are the branches. And and notice in in verse 4, we have this repetition here. Abide in me and I in you. Um, Branch can't bear fruit unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches, he who abides in me. We see this, um, this connection with Jesus that we must have as being the true vine. And, and often in the Old Testament, the vine was, was going to get destroyed because it did not bear fruit. Um, so it's, the vine in the Old Testament is predominantly a judgment <laughs> illustration. But Jesus is changing that and saying, no, I I am here, and if you are with me, you will bear fruit. Again, we went, uh, John 15, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. You being the disciples, and I think we can read ourselves into this also. Um, He chose us out of the world. Remember the word I said to you. And then we go down to verse 25. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. Again, I, Jesus would have said Torah. He would not. Law is a Greek rendition of, of what Jesus would have said. And, and the reason I say that is, where, where is Jesus referencing? Psalm 69. Psalm 69 is not a law. It's the other writings. So he's using Torah to represent all of the Old Testament. They hated me without a cause. So now we've got something else to think about. Jesus said, they're going to hate me. They're also going to what? Hate you. And then he references Psalm 69. So we know that we could read Psalm 69 from the viewpoint of David. We know that we can read Psalm 69 from the viewpoint of Jesus. And I think what Jesus is saying here is, we can read Psalm 69 from the viewpoint of a disciple. So the raw emotions that we saw can be things that we identify with. And we, we can appropriate Psalm 69 for ourselves in how we read that also. All four Gospels have a commission, not just Matthew. Uh, but John 17, um, as you sent me into the world, I also sent them into the world. So the commission to the disciples, the commission to us is to be sent into the world. So our reflections on the road to Emmaus, we looked at Mark. He had indirect allusions. And we see Mark as, who is Jesus? What's his identity? 
With Matthew, we saw to fulfill being reflected a lot. How is Torah transfigured in Jesus? Luke is how Torah is obeyed. We saw Luke was very, very careful to show us how often people obeyed Torah and how Jesus is is not taking away Torah, but filling it up for showing how Torah was meant to be lived. And John we see as giving us a lot of the symbols in Israel's history and how Jesus kind of yields light to those symbols and to the mission of Jesus. So I, I thank you for your time. Again, I'm hoping that as you read through Gospels now, um, there, there's a little more richness or a little more there that we can see uh, than maybe we were seeing in the past. And if it opens up maybe a love for trying to understand more in the Old Testament, then, then that's, I think, where we need to go also. So again, thank you. Next week, Richard takes over. And from that, not too bad. So appreciate it, everyone. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the senior minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you. I'd like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.